Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
are beginning this morning in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. We are starting at verse 9, which begins with the phrase, after these things, and you can't really start anything on after these things. It's kind of like starting with, in summary, what we have seen so far in the chapter is that there were 144,000 specifically Israelites, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, who were marked by an angel while the whole rest of the world was going to be harmed by the angels that held back the wind on the earth. What's important to remember about that is that God's wrath is being poured out on the planet when John writes after these things, after the marking of the 144,000. Now, at the end of chapter 6, we were asked a very important question that I think chapter 7 is now in the process of answering. Because the last verse of chapter 6, verse 17, says the great day of their wrath, the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God, the wrath that is causing people to run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth and say, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So that is that great day of his wrath that has come. And then the question, who is able to stand? Who can stand? When God, the real God, the majestic God, the all-powerful God, the God who made heaven and earth and who can deconstruct it just as easily, the God who Peter says is going to burn up this planet and then start over with a new heavens and a new earth, when that God decides to finally let go of his anger and finally pour out his wrath against his enemies, who can stand? The first group that is able to stand at the beginning of chapter 7 are the 144,000 because they are marked by God to be preserved by God as he is pouring out his wrath. Today we're going to see the next group that is able to stand. And the really important thing that's going to be emphasized again and again that really undergirds our entire theology, our entire understanding of the Bible, is that the only people who can stand, the only people who are saved, the only people who are preserved through the wrath of God are people who God himself saves. Because yet again, we're going to read that God is our Savior. In other words, we don't do it. We can't do it. Tom, if you would, look up Psalm 3.8. Just a couple of Wednesdays ago, we went through the third psalm, and we came across this concept yet again, that it is God and God alone who saves. In the book of Jonah, we read that, that when Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, he came to the conclusion that salvation is of the Lord. So this is thematic all the way through the Bible, and here we are in the book of Revelation, and we're going to read yet again in verse 10, salvation is of our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In other words, you can't do it. When Jesus told Nicodemus, 
that he needed to be born again from above, anothen. Nicodemus didn't understand it and said, how's a man going to climb back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus' answer, rather than reassure him that it was going to be up to him to do something to get saved, instead Jesus said, look at the wind. You can see it, you can hear it, but you don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus said, it's not up to you. A couple of weeks ago, when the conference up in Gladeville gathered, I started my lectures up there by saying, it is an astounding, remarkable privilege to be among the people of God who he chose before the foundation of the world and put those people into the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. That is an amazing privilege. All you have to do is walk around in this world a little bit and you'll see all the people who don't have that privilege, who God has left in their sin and in their confusion and in their rebellion. It is God and God alone who is the Savior. And only if God saves you actively by his grace, saves you, preserves you, sets you apart from the whole rest of the world, only then can you stand when the wrath of God is poured out. Why? Because he preserves you. That's what we're about to read. This great throng in heaven that is crying out and singing and praising God and declaring to God something God already knows, that salvation is from God and from the Lamb. And yet that's what God wants said over and over and over again in his worship. It's the same as what we read earlier in the book of Revelation, that he has angels around his head repeating to him that he is holy, holy, holy. In other words, God never gets tired of praise. Praise is due to God. God deserves unending praise, and he has structured his own heaven in such a way where he gets constantly glorified and praised for who he is and what he's like. And the chief things we know about him so far through the book of Revelation is that he is, number one, holy, untouched, unstained, unspotted by sin, There is not even the the shadow of any variableness or changeness in him. He is completely, eternally holy. That's number one thing. Number two is he is the source of all salvation. There is no other salvation anywhere in the universe unless he himself accomplishes. So he is Savior. That's why we see that word all the way through the Bible, Savior. Because he is actively saving. Which naturally leads to the question, save from what? Theologians sometimes get this wrong. And they'll say, well, chiefly, he saved us from our sin. Or they'll say, he saved us from hell. Well, it's not like you owe a debt to hell and hell can jump up and get you. The thing he saved you from is God, the wrath of God. He's the one who is going to judge you and put you in hell. He is the one who is going to leave your sins on you and judge you accordingly. 
He is the one who chooses people before the foundation of the world. He is the one who provided his son as a perfect sacrifice so that you could be with him spotless and unblemished and blameless for all of eternity. He is the one who accomplished salvation from his own wrath. And that's why the question remains, who can stand when God pours out his wrath? And the only answer is the ones that God chose. And that's whether we're looking at Ephesians 1, whether you're looking at Romans 8 and 9, whether you're looking at the book of Genesis when God chooses Abraham. All through the Bible, what you see is God actively picking and choosing and electing and determining in his sovereignty exactly the way that the entirety of the world is going to go, including who's going to be saved. In other words, salvation is of the Lord. Yes. Don't ever get confused about that and start thinking that salvation is a synergistic thing. Yeah, me and God, we worked it out. Me and God, we got me saved. God cooperated with me, I cooperated with God, and that resulted in my salvation. Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus is my homeboy. Oh my, if I see that t-shirt again, I might rip it off someone. But... No, God alone, God completely, God all by himself accomplished salvation for those people who he chose before the foundation of the world. That's the Bible language, which is why this declaration by all these people who are now standing before the throne who recognize when they're there that he's the one that did it. There's not a one of them in this huge group of people who are going to say, yeah, me and Jesus, we did it. Instead, they say, he who is on the throne Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, they saved me. And I think, by the way, once you throw off this body of flesh and its pride and its ego and its arrogance, and then you're standing finally in front of the God of ages, which I can't even begin to conceive of, I don't think it's going to be difficult for us to say, you did it all. I did nothing. This has to be grace and nothing but grace and continual grace and eternal grace. It it has to be all you because there's just no way it can possibly be me. I'm too egocentric. I'm too rebellious. I'm too fleshly and sinful to be in your presence, to stand before you. You are the God who encases himself in a light that no man approaches And then you tell me that I get to stand before your throne? How does that happen? It has to be him. It can't possibly be us. So worship in heaven sounds just like this. You, you did it all. Did I ask you to look up Psalm 3 verse 8? Read that for us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Think about that. Salvation, which is referred to there by David as a blessing, is of the Lord, and it is the Lord who blesses his people by saving them. 
So my point is, whether you're looking at the Old Testament, whether you're looking at Jonah, whether you're looking at David's writing, whether you're looking at the book of Revelation, whether you're looking at Pauline theology, this consistent theme keeps showing up time and time again, which is God in his sovereignty does whatever he wants to do, and what he was pleased to do was to save some people. Those people finally gather in heaven, and we're getting a glimpse into that here in chapter 7, starting at verse 9. And this is what John sees, this great throng crying about, praising about the fact that God is the Savior. And they're going to know it. When you're there, you're going to know it. There's going to be no question. After these things, I looked. Is it also worth pointing out that John has yet again given us sequential language. So far, throughout the book of Revelation, John has continued saying, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. That's going to become important as we continue through the book because John does speak sequentially throughout the entire book, and I really want to underline that and emphasize that. Because by the time we get to chapter 19 and chapter 20, that's going to become vitally important. So tattoo that to your forehead. We'll get back to it later. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude. They stand in contrast to the 144,000 Israelites because they are described like this. A great multitude which no one can count. By the way, that word, count there, is arithmeo in the Greek. It's the word from which we get arithmetic. In other words, John is yet again demonstrating that he knows how to count, he knows how to add, he knows the arithmetic that he has already laid out in this chapter. I know I beat that to death last week, but even the fact that he used this word arithmeo here demonstrates yet again that John is very, very familiar with counting and adding and numbers. And this particular group, nobody could number. Unlike the previous group, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, he numbered them. That's arithmetic. And then he says, in contrast to that numerical group, there is this other group that nobody could count. It's too large and they are described as being from every nation, every ethnos. It's the word from which we get ethnic, ethnicity. Every race of people, every group of people out there. From every nation and from every tribe. Fule is the Greek word. It means every offshoot, every clan. I'm, I'm Irish. McClarty is my last name. And so the McClarties are part of a particular clan, tribe, the same way that Israel was divided up into tribes. So John began with every nation, ethnic group of people, and then within those ethnicities, there are breakdowns of tribes. And then after mentioning nations and tribes, he says, and peoples. This is a word you should be familiar with because earlier in the book of Revelation, we came across Jesus saying that he hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And when we broke that word down, we saw that it meant 
to suppress or to hold down, to rule over the people, laos. Well, this is that word laos here, the peoples. From every nation, from every tribe, from every people, and from every glossa, every tongue, every known spoken language, every naturally acquired language. In other words, he's saying this is a mixture of absolutely everybody who exists on the planet. It's not every individual who ever existed on the planet, but it is a mixture of all the different kinds and types and ethnic groups and families and tribes and peoples and tongues on the planet. I think we can safely say this is the church. This makes up the people group that Christ has saved. And they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And there are two things mentioned about them. One, that they're clothed in their white robes. We've already seen, and we'll see it again by the time we get to chapter 19 in the marriage supper of the Lamb, Christ returning with all his saints, the same thing that Jude has predicted, that Christ is going to come back with the ten thousands of his saints. And they're described as wearing white robes, which is defined in chapter 19 as the righteousness of the saints. So it's significant that they are not wearing their own clothing They are wearing white robes that are given to them as a gift. So even the righteousness that we have, even the clothing that allows us to stand before God is a gift from God. Why? Because he's the Savior. You getting the theme so far? They are standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches are in their hands. This is a curious and interesting little detail that actually is explainable if you know your Old Testament. There was one feast every year. Well, I should go back. There are three feasts every year. There are seven feasts every year (laughs) that are grouped into three groupings. Anyway, everybody who could travel in Israel was responsible to go to Jerusalem during the times of these feasts. But in one of them, there were palm branches involved during the Feast of Booths. You'll read about it in Leviticus 23. If you want to look at it yourself, I'm going to start reading in Leviticus 23:39, And I'm going to read till verse 42. It says, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land... You shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest or a high day on the first day and a Sabbath of rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day, you shall take for yourself the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and branches of trees with thick branches and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So obviously these palm branches were necessary during the Feast of Booths for the specific reason that they were part of worship and that they would present and fan these palm branches. And they didn't know why they did this. 1,400 years they would do this. 
starting at verse 41. So you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in a year. It shall be a permanent statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. And then you see Jesus on what we know as the triumphal entry when he's riding on the back of a donkey that's never been ridden before, people start throwing their robes and palm branches in front of him as he's walking. So it's a recognition that he is the satisfaction, the fulfillment of these things that are said in the Old Testament. And then here you are in the book of Revelation, and they are told to take up palm branches as part of their worship And then what's really interesting about it is in verse 17 of this same chapter, we read that God is going to spread his tabernacle, his booth, over them. The full satisfaction that God has already foreshadowed. For 1,400 years, he had Israel worshiping once a year in the Feast of Tabernacles and using palm branches, not really knowing why, but that's what God said to do. Come and worship God with palm branches. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and they start laying down palm branches. And the eternal worship of God, John sees people with palm branches, which to him, to his Jewish mind, would make him think of the Feast of Tabernacles And then he hears that God is going to build his tabernacle over the people of God who he has saved. Wonderful imagery that again spans the Bible. Starts all the way back at Exodus with God laying out feasts. Is satisfied and yet again foreshadowed in Jesus. Comes to its fulfillment in the everlasting worship of God. In other words, God knows what he's doing. God is really sovereign. God is constantly laying out these indications of who he is, what he's going to do, what the future looks like. I like that God. We've almost gotten through one verse. I feel good. So, so it's good. After these things I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because you've already seen some of this in the book of Revelation. Back when we were looking at chapter 5, I stressed to you that God, who can have any kind of heaven he wants, God who can develop any kind of environment he wants for himself, has placed himself in an environment of constant worship, constantly being glorified. And so I stressed if that's what's going on in heaven, that certainly ought to be a priority for us, the people of God here on earth. The worship of God, the praise of God is an intimate, integral part of what we're supposed to be doing as Christian people. Turn back to chapter 5 for just a moment. I'll start reading at verse 6. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders 
I saw a lamb standing, as if he had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, and there were seven spirits of God, which are the seven spirits of God, and they were sent out into all the earth. And he came, that lamb, he came and took the scroll out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. So in chapter 5, we're told that it was the blood of Christ who purchased the great throng who we see in chapter 7. Verse 10 says, And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Back to chapter 7. After these things I looked, there's a great multitude, no one can count, every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen. We say, Amen. It's, it's an old Hebrew word. It's an ancient word, Amon, which means, really, literally, it means something that's firm, something that's rigorous, something you can depend on, something that is trustworthy. And so, before they make these declarations about the characteristics and the qualities of God and the praise that he deserves, they start by saying, this is trustworthy. You can count on this. You can stand on this. This is firm. What we're about to tell you is reality. And by the way, if I'm John, and I'm standing and I see this heavenly vision, and I see the angelic host, and all the redeemed and the saved of God, and then the angel says, now what I'm about to tell you is trustworthy. I'm going to believe him. (laughs) I'm going to say, yes, definitely, amen to that. This is trustworthy. So the next couple of things that are listed are testified before God's throne by the angels that these are characteristics of God and things that God deserves God deserves the praise and the worship for these things, and you can count on it. You can trust it. You can believe it. This is how God is. First off, salvation belongs to God. Trust that. Believe that because your ego, your pride, your flesh, really wants to think that some of it must have something to do with you. You know how we are. We think, well, yes, it's all up to sovereign God. God is sovereign. God chooses. God saves. Yes. But, you know, I did that good thing that one time, and I'm betting 
that God is aware of that and that it gave me a little leg up. To balance my scales, the next time I do something wrong, I'll have that good thing I did to kind of make it okay. It's just the way we think naturally because, let's face it, we're just Arminians by nature. We, we just want to believe that there's something in us that is so likable, so good, so approachable that God would say, well, I wouldn't be heaven without you. So the beginning of the trustworthy statements, the first thing that we just have to settle is that salvation is of the Lord and of the Lamb. That is what was declared back in chapter 5 when the four living creatures and the 24 elders declared that it was by the blood of Christ that he saved people of every tongue and tribe and nation and peoples. Now those very people are before the throne of God and they're declaring the same thing. They start at, you did it, you did it all. Salvation is of our God who sits on the throne and salvation belongs to the Lamb because he's the one who spilled the blood. He's the perfect Savior. He's the one who, get this right, did not make salvation available. He accomplished salvation, which is why hanging on the cross he could say, it's done. Not, I did my part, so good luck to the rest of you. I hope you do your part too. He said, it's finished to telestai. It's what I came here to do is now a done deal. And what did he come to do? Save his people. Redeem the people of God with his blood. And in the worship in heaven, whether we're talking about the 24 elders, whether we're talking about the living creatures, whether we're talking about the countless angels, or whether we're talking about all the redeemed gathering around the throne of God, they all declare in a trustworthy statement, salvation is from God and from Christ. And if that's what's being declared in heaven, that is what we ought to declare here. Amen. Blessing. That's a word that here in the South has kind of lost its meaning because you can say just about any old insulting thing to anybody as long as you finish it with, bless his heart. <laughs> well, you know, he's about as dumb as a box of rocks, bless his heart. You know, I mean, it's just. Amen. Oh, no, no. <laughs> It was not a moment of testifying. <laughs> now, the word here that is translated as blessing is eulogia in the Greek, which is the word from which we get eulogy. You know that that EU prefix means good, positive. Logia means speech. So this word translated blessings actually means good speech. When God blesses you, makes you spiritually prosperous, gives you the things you need. All those things that we call blessings, they occur because God is speaking well of you. The very fact that God would write you in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world is a really good thing for God to say about you. Amen. This answers the question, how then do we Bless God. We, he doesn't have any needs. He's God. We can't provide him with anything that he needs. 
How are we a blessing to God? And yet we're told, like in the Psalms, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. How do I do that? How do I bless the Lord? Well, the answer is in that Greek word, eulogia, speak well of God, to say good words about God. That is how you bless the Lord, by praising God, by crediting God just like the throng here does, by crediting God with salvation, by understanding that he is on his throne doing whatever pleases him and that it is this great privilege that in what he's pleased to do, he would save some people. And then you admit that and you tell people that and you stand on that, you have faith in that, you declare that openly, that is blessing the Lord. So, Here's what we know so far. Salvation is from God. Blessings come from God, and in exchange, we bless God. And glory, doxa, this is another one of those words that has a remarkably wide application. For instance, Paul, when writing about the heavens, would say that star differs from star in glory. Well, what does he mean by that, especially when we use that same word to say that God is glorious? The best understanding I can give you of this word doxa, if I'm going to try to narrow it down to its, uh, its essence, it means that something is praiseworthy when you break it down to the essential elements that make it what it is. That when you finally break down What makes up God? It deserves, he deserves all the glory, all the praise, all the time, because that's who he is. That's what the word glory means. And then wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. God is the seat of wisdom. God is the the culmination of wisdom. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. We talked about this back when we were reading through Isaiah Do you know the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is the accumulation of information. Anybody can acquire knowledge about anything, especially these days with the internet, where you have endless access to mostly useless stuff. But every once in a while, you'll purposefully look up something important to you, and you'll gain some knowledge about it. Okay, so how much knowledge does God have? He knows all the stuff. That's why we say that he's all-knowing. He's omniscient. Okay, so wisdom is knowing what to do with that knowledge. And God is the ultimate source and ultimate demonstration of wisdom because he not only knows everything, he knows what is the best outcome and the best use of everything he knows. That's what Sophia is. That's what wisdom really is. For instance, I have accumulated a fair amount of information, which I guess I could call knowledge because a lot of that information is completely trivial. But I have a lot of stuff I know in my 66 years. In fact, I've lived long enough now that I'm forgetting stuff that I once upon a time knew. And as often as not, I'll forget it in the middle of a sentence. But I don't always know what to do with the stuff I know. 
And on those occasions where I am actually helpful to other people because of the stuff I know, that's wisdom. That wisdom is a gift from God. God, who is the source of all wisdom, shares that wisdom with his people. You get the difference now? And so, as the angels, as the throng here, are ticking down the things that we have to credit God alone for, we've got salvation, blessings that come from God, and all glory belongs to God, all wisdom belongs to God, and therefore, God deserves all the Eucharistus. He deserves all the thanksgiving. Which is why it's so important that Paul would say that we're to bring our petitions to God. We go to pray to God, but he says, but do it with thanksgiving. Make sure to be thankful for what God has already done for you. I mean, there's not a person in this room who can't right now, at this very moment, think of something they ought to thank God for. It's really easy when you think about it. You're wearing clothes? Thank him. Did you eat something? Thank him. Quick, what's your name? The fact that you know your name? Thank him. The fact that you are at whatever level of health you happen to be at. That's his sustaining you and protecting you and providing for you. Thank him. You got kids you haven't killed yet? Thank you. Yeah, you got to thank him for the patience and the endurance that comes with that. There are so many things to thank God for, including the fact that he has blessed you, including the fact that he's glorious, including the fact that he's God and he's sitting on his throne doing whatever he wants. And if you can't think of anything else to thank him for, you're saved. You'll be thanking him forever. You might as well start now. And so all thanksgiving belongs to God. Salvation, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, Tme is the Greek word, it means value. If you've got something that you paid a good deal of money for, and so you feel that it has some value to you, then you will put it someplace where other people can see it and where you can look at it. It'll have place of pride in your home because that means something to you. It gets a place of honor in your home. That's the idea behind this Tme word. It means that some things just have an intrinsic dignity to themselves. And God is the ultimate expression of that kind of honorable dignity. And therefore, this word honor is used here because he's of the the highest esteem. There's nothing that has any better estimation in your life than the fact that you belong to God. And there's nothing that this world can give you or take away from you, no matter how important it seems to you, There's nothing that can separate you from God. So then he gets the highest honor, the highest esteem. And it all belongs to him. And then a word that really you should be familiar with by now, because we've talked about it enough times, that he has all the power that is dunamis. It's the word from which we get words like dynamic, 
He is all power. Here, I'll give you a quick example. Have you made any universes lately? Nope. <laughs> he did. And he didn't even, apparently, work hard at it because he spoke it into existence. That's the kind of power he has. That's the kind of authority he has. You know, I raised two kids. Right, James? Mm -hmm. Okay. I raised two kids, and when they were young, I would tell them what to do. And they would do it about 25, 30% of the time. Fair enough. Okay, so when you didn't do what I told you, did I shrug and walk away and go, yeah, okay, all right. No. no. I implemented what I wanted you to do because I had the power to implement it. How much power does God have? That's why he can declare the future in advance. That's why he can lay out his standard and his rules. Because he also has the power to make sure that everything he says comes to fruition. And whether you do it agreeably or disagreeably, you're going to do what he says. I mean, that's what the whole book of Jonah is about. God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no. Where did he end up? Nineveh. And rather than go the easy way by just cooperating and saying, yes, sir, God, Nineveh, going now. Instead, he had to get on a ship and get thrown off and swallowed by a great fish, come to the conclusion salvation is of the Lord. Then he gets upchucked by the fish, and you know he had to look and smell great at that point. And then make his way to Nineveh from there. In other words, you're going where God says you're going. And why is that? Because he has all the power. He has all the dunamis, therefore he has all the authority. Okay, so that's an intrinsic ability that he has all the power. But the next word that they use here is he also has the iscus. He also has the strength. Because the same way that wisdom is knowing what to do with the knowledge, same relationship with these two words. God can have all the power and just never exercise it, never utilize it, keep it to himself. His strength is when he exercises that power. In other words, I believe I can pick up my book bag. Anybody else here believe in me on that one? Yep. You'll notice I did not choose a heavy object. But I can pick up my book bag. Now, you could all agree with me that I have the power to pick up my book bag. You could look at me and say, he probably has the health and the ability to pick up his book bag. But when I actually pick up the book bag, I am exercising the strength we all assume I have. See the difference? So God is omnipotent, omnipotent. He has all the power and then in time and history, he exercises that power, and that is his strength on display. So what do we know so far? Salvation belongs to God and God alone. Salvation 
is a result of the finished work of the Lamb. So salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And then, amen, this is all trustworthy that he is the source of all blessing. And therefore, he gets all the glory. He is the source of wisdom. He who knows everything knows what to do with everything and everyone. And we thank him for it. We praise him for it. He deserves all of our thanksgiving And therefore, we hold him in this very high esteem, this place of honor above everyone and everything, because he has all the power, all the dunamis, and then he exercises it. He has all the strength. And all that, says the angel, belongs to our God forever and ever. He never changes. He is always the source of all of those blessings and qualities. And then, almost like a bookend, he started by saying, amen, this is trustworthy, you can count on it, you can stand on it, this has rigor. I'm about to tell you some really important stuff about who God is and what he's like. And then after he gives us the list of what God's like, he finishes it by saying, amen again, amen and amen. So if the angelic host, standing before the throne of God, is declaring this about God, shouldn't we agree? Because he's not going to change for us. Therefore, we have to understand and recognize that this is what God is like, and this is what belongs to him, and this is what we ought to give him. We ought to give him the good words, the good speech. We ought to give him the praise. We ought to give him the glory. We ought to recognize that he has all power and authority. And so we ought to continuously thank him because that's what's going on in heaven. So do it here. Okay, so now we get into the section, and boy, I hope there's time enough to do it. Now we get into the section that Erica asked me about last Sunday. She wanted me to define this people group and explain their relationship to the time of tribulation that is going on on the planet. That's why I said that 45 minutes ago, that obviously God is pouring out wrath on the planet People on the planet are running for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth saying, fall on us, hide us from his wrath. The angels are holding back the wind. The earth is being scorched. The trees, the seas, everything is being harmed. God has sealed his 144,000. And then this throng is seen in heaven from every kindred, every tribe, every nation. And then the elder says to John in verse 13, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? John comes up with the right answer, which is, well, you got to know, because I, I, I just got here. <laughs> I, I can't answer that question for you. So, verse 14, I said to him, my Lord, you know. It's a great answer, by the way. Ezekiel, when he was in the Valley of Dry Bones, was asked by the Spirit of God, can these bones live? And his answer was, uh, you know. 
men are not supposed to know these kind of things. Men are not able to decree these kinds of things. So John wisely says, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The second half of that verse is not difficult at all. It's very easy to understand that what's being said is they are standing in white robes now, the sign of their righteousness, their purity before God, because they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, their robes are made white by the blood of the Lamb. It's not difficult at all. But the first half of that verse has caused unending conversation and consternation and debate. And the entire debate revolves around when did they come out of the Great Tribulation? Now, there's no question that the phrase is Great Tribulation, which harkens back to Jesus in Matthew 24 saying that there was going to be a time of tribulation on the planet. And that actually takes us all the way back to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, is the first place where we read about this time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again. This time that Jesus is going to refer to as the Thalipsis Megas, which is the exact same language that's used here in Revelation 7. This tribulation, Thalipsis, the great Megas. And they came out of it. So when did they come out of it? Listen to the language that Daniel uses. Daniel 12, I'm going to start reading at verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Who would be the sons of Daniel's people? Israel. Israel, exactly. They can't be anybody else. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of trouble or distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, Daniel's people, the very ones who make up the nation, and at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Okay, so in Daniel's estimation, who is this time of trouble for? Israel. Israel. That's who it's about. That's who is involved in it. Jeremiah 30, Jeremiah then picks up the same language and makes it even more clear. Jeremiah 30, starting in verse 4, says, Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. So who are these words concerning? Israel and Judah. Okay, just want to make sure you understand. Here are those words. For this is what the Lord says, I have heard a sound of terror, of fear, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. And why do I see every man with his hands on his waist as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Woe, for that day is great, and there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. Who is Jacob? Israel. Israel. This is really easy, isn't it? Yep. This is the time of Jacob's distress, and yet he'll be saved from it. The same way that Daniel said, everyone who's written in the book of your people, Israel, 
will be saved through it. And then Jesus picks it up in Matthew 24. He's speaking, obviously, to the Jews in Matthew 24. The day of Pentecost has not happened yet. There is no inclusion of Gentiles into the church yet. So speaking to the Jews, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken by the prophet Daniel. Okay, so now he's hearkening back to Daniel. And he says, and when you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about, when you see him standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea, who would be in Judea? Israel. Israel, the Jews. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get things out of his house, and whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those women who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Moreover, pray that when you flee, it will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. What people group is concerned about keeping Sabbath? Israel. Israel. Do you see how easy this is? So who is Jesus addressing these comments to? Israel. Israel. Who did Jeremiah address his comments to? Israel. Who is Daniel addressing his comments to? Israel. Duh, Israel. <laughs> Moreover, pray that when you flee, it will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then will be the Thalipsis Megas, a time of tr great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be again. And so as we get to the book of Revelation, we see a further description of this time of trouble, this time of terror, this time of God's wrath on planet Earth. And somewhere in the midst of that, you see this great throng who we've said is the church. I think it's impossible not to say they're the church because they are the redeemed, the saved of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And they are in heaven while God is pouring out his wrath on Earth. Evidence that the church will not go through the wrath of God. Paul himself wrote that we are not appointed to wrath. And Jesus himself bore the wrath of God. Therefore, I don't think God is going to pour out the wrath of God a second time on the body of Christ. You put all those pieces together and you can see why this group is in heaven as God is pouring out his wrath on planet Earth. The question is, when did they leave before the tribulation started? Did they leave during the tribulation just before the wrath started? I think it's impossible to say that they left and went to heaven after the tribulation because that's still happening on earth while they are appearing in heaven. So the two available options are that they left pre-tribulationally or mid-tribulationally in a pre-wrath context. Those are the only two viable options. I think because the seven years, the time of tribulation, such as never was or ever would be again, is described throughout the Bible as being Israel's time of distress, I don't see where the church is going to be participating in a great deal of that. But if you really want to know the argument for the church being caught away go and look on our website in the archives. I believe it's under topical messages. We spent several weeks talking about 
the courtship between the bride, the church, and Christ as the bridegroom, and then the betrothing, and then him returning to get his church, and then going to the place where he had made in his father's house, and then we tie that up by looking at Paul's words in First and Second Thessalonians about the church being caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. What we know for certain, the only thing I can say certainly, is that when the wrath of God comes to the planet, church can't be there. The wrath of God is still being poured out, and they're in heaven, worshiping God. Now, the word that is used here for, and I know, I know it's 12 o'clock. I'm going to get you out of here by 3, 3.30, I promise. Um, no, I'm joking. I'll be done in just a moment-ish, kind of. <laughs> the word here that we would count on to help us is the word that is translated, come out. They have come out of the Great Tribulation. And we would try to find a timestamp in there. Okay, they've come out of the Great Tribulation. When? Well, the word is just erkomai, and there are actually three different versions of that word in the Greek language. And all it ever means is come or go. <laughs> Throughout the New Testament, erkomai means come or go. And so contextually, we know that they didn't go at this point. They, they come. They've come out of the Great Tribulation. They're not part of the Great Tribulation. I would argue it's because the Great Tribulation belongs to Israel, as we've read. So therefore, the body of Christ won't be part of it. And they have come out of this Thalipsis Megas. So it's good to know, as stupid as the world is right now, as crazy as the world is getting right now, where every new day brings some brand new outrage that makes you just kind of want to duct tape your head together and say, how can this be happening? We're at the point where we can't tell men from women. I mean, oh my goodness. And you can be any made up gender you want to be. I mean, how stupid are we really? And I have said now for 20 years, I've stood here and said, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. And now it's getting worse, but gloriously worse. The men of GCA met at my house on Friday night, and we were just talking about, not really commiserating about, but sort of celebrating about the fact that all these things are lining up exactly the way the Bible says they were supposed to line up. Proof yet again that the Bible is true, the Bible is accurate, the Bible is amen, it's firm, you can stand on it. And so don't be afraid, don't be scared as the world continues to get more stupid. Know that you have the sure guarantee from the word of God repeatedly that when the actual wrath of God starts... When the time of trouble such as never was or ever will be again, when that starts, when that's going here on the planet, according to this, we won't be here. Now, if that doesn't bring you hope and confidence, I got nothing else for you. Except to look at the word of God and say, the God who has all power and all knowledge, who sovereignly chose me before the foundation of the world, has the ability to preserve me and protect me and keep me, and he's going to deliver me. He's going to save me, based not on myself, not on my behavior. He's going to save me and redeem me through the finished work of a completely perfect Savior, 
who gave a completely perfect sacrifice. And that is my hope. That is my confidence going into the future, no matter how stupid the world gets. You got it? Okay, let's just read the end of this, because now it just gets remarkably good. Verse 15, because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, for this reason, they're before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. The Feast of Booth, the Feast of Tabernacles, the whole point of it was that all Israel had to live in temporary dwellings to remind them that this tent of flesh that we live in is temporary. This is not our permanent home. This world is not our home. We are living here on a temporary basis, but ultimately our home is when God places his tabernacle over us and we dwell forever in the house of the Lord. He who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. That's in complete contrast to what we just read earlier in the chapter, that God is going to hold back the four winds so that the earth is scorched, so that the seas begin drying up so that the trees are hurt. There's going to be so much drought and damage to the planet because of sun and heat. But those who belong to him, those from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are standing before his throne, some won't beat down on them, nor any heat. Why? Because the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd. And there's that sheep-shepherd analogy yet again. He is our great shepherd. He is the one who leads us into green pastures and besides still waters. And he's the one who shepherds us for the rest of eternity. And he shall guide us to the springs of the water of life. By the time we get to Revelation 22, we're going to see that we have unending access to the streams of life and to the tree of life. And here is a foreshadow a precursor of that that he is our shepherd is going to guide us to the springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and I know this I've cried enough for one lifetime I've had enough mourning I've had enough of losing loved ones I've enjoyed about as much of this life as I can stand And yet, when we're safely in his hands, no more crying, no more tears, no more death, no more sickness, because he places his tabernacle over us to protect us and to lead us by these waters of life. I don't know about you. I'm good to go now. Amen. (laughs) I'm ready to go if that is the end result. I cannot wait. Thank you for listening. 
to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.